The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Uh, why don't we pray and then we'll, we'll get into uh, the word this morning. Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that um, can alone disarm our defenses and all of the ways that we push you away and push your truth away out of our fears and insecurities. And we pray that out of that ministry to us through the work of your Spirit and the work of your Word, we would come under the light of your truth and be changed and transformed by it into more Christ-likeness as you desire. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. In my last message, sort of by way of a little bit of review here, I pointed out the disconnect that we often feel with this um, teaching in the Bible about idolatry, especially when it's sort of framed as the sin of abandoning God and choosing to worship other gods. Uh, It's just not a sin that we feel particularly susceptible to. Almost none of us feel any kind of regular temptation to walk away from Christianity uh, in order to become a Buddhist or a Muslim or any other religion. And so, in a way, there's this real danger that we can sort of relegate the sin of idolatry to nothing more than a historical footnote, uh, a sin that more primitive people struggled with in ancient times, but in truth, we no longer have to worry about. And so I argued in that last message that I preached two weeks ago that I think that's just simply looking too superficially at the sin of idolatry. In in other words, if religion is reduced to nothing more than a belief system, then I would agree it would seem nonsensical to think that someone could so easily switch back and forth between religions or gods like the ancients did. But as I argued in that last message, religion is more a matter of the heart than it is of the head alone. In other words, worship is about giving our hearts to that which we long for and value most. And so that command against idolatry is outlined in that very first commandment in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 3-6. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven or above, above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so as I said in that last message, at its core, idolatry is a violation of what Jesus labeled as the greatest commandment in all of the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is not the language of belief systems but it's of devotion and love. And so the heart of idolatry is captured in God's rebuke to his people through this prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. In other words, the people were going through the motions, following all of the rules 
But they had given their hearts away to other gods, to idols. But God doesn't want just our rote obedience. He wants our hearts. He is always after our hearts because our heart represents the core of our being. And as I clarified last week, that's, when we say heart, we're not just talking about our emotions. It includes our rational intellect. It includes our emotional mind. And it includes our will, our volition. All of that comes together to what the Bible would call the heart, the seat of the soul, the place out of which really emerges our destiny. And the Bible is filled with that affirmation. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 27, verse 19, As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. In other words, the heart is the prime mover that determines the course of our lives. The choices that we make, the things that we love, all of that emanates from what the Bible would call your heart. Martin Luther, the great reformer, argued that we never break any of the other nine commandments without first breaking the first one. Do not commit adultery. Because what Luther was keying us onto is the idea that at the root of every sin, is giving our heart away to something else. And it is only when we have done that that all these other sins like stealing and lying and dishonoring our parents and even murder emanates. And so, as I mentioned in the last message, if we're going to take seriously the sin of idolatry in our lives, we have to deal honestly with this issue of desire. Desire. How honestly we are able or even willing to answer that question. What do you want? What do you want? Not what do I think I should want. But in your heart of hearts, above all else, what do you really, really want? Or we could ask it in another way. What do you love? More than anything in the world, what has captured your heart? Join me in this brief thought experiment, if you would. Imagine if you were Jeff Bezos. Now, do you know who Jeff Bezos is? I think most of you know that he's the founder and CEO of Amazon. And he also happens to be the richest man in the world. If you're sort of more my age, you sort of grew up always thinking of who? Bill Gates as the richest man in the world. But uh, this generation is growing up realizing it's Bezos. And he absolutely eclipses Bill Gates. By July 2018, his net worth had reached over $150 billion. To get a sense of how much money that is, imagine going on a million-dollar spending spree. Just picture that. Buy whatever you want for a million dollars. And then imagine doing that a thousand times in a row. A thousand million-dollar spending sprees and you have not even scratched into 1% of his net worth. That just gives you an idea of how insanely rich this guy is. And last year, he made headlines, not because of his wealth, but because of his very public divorce with his wife of 25 years after he was caught having an affair with another woman. 
I want you to imagine being in his shoes at the age of 56, which is how old he is now. Single, once again, after 25 years of marriage. And having more money than a human being could even imagine possessing. And now I want to ask you to ask that question of yourself. What do I want? What do I want? How would Bezos answer that question? Do you think you would try to find love again and remarry? Or in truth, with the thought of a long-term relationship in which this other person basically expects to be treated as your equal is just way more headache than it's worth at this point in your life. I mean, the truth is, as the richest guy on earth, he could have an endless stream of beautiful young women on, at his side, couldn't he? But again, you'd have to ask yourself at 56, is that really what I want? Would that satisfy? You can sort of imagine if you were Bezos that maybe where you would direct your energies is to build up Amazon to be even greater than it is right now. And it's hit a market cap of $1 trillion. I mean, how much greater can you get? How much more dominant can you be in a sector? But maybe that's the vision. That's the dream. Or maybe the truth is you would just build the most insanely awesome home that you could imagine and retire in it and live like a king for the rest of your life. You get the sense that Bezos is kind of struggling with this question because every year he's pouring a billion dollars of his own money into space exploration, (laughs) of all things. I mean, maybe that answer is in the stars somewhere. I don't know. I ask you to do this thought experiment with me because I worry that we don't question seriously enough our own wrestling with the worldly desires that compete for our devotion. What I'm saying is is this. I worry that what often limits our pursuit of other things that we really want in life is driven not so much out of our devotion to God as much as it is simply our limited options. And the reason why I argue that is this. I think the truth is for many of us, we often buy the best car or the biggest house or the nicest wardrobe that we can afford. And that's the key, is that we can afford. And the more money we make, actually the truth is the closer we move to those goals of our ultimate dreams, of what we really dream about for our lives. And so what if those limitations were removed? What if you could have whatever you want? What if you were Jeff Bezos, in other words? What then would drive the choices that you make about answering that question? What do I really, really want in life? I want to say this about idolatry in our modern days. Idolatry was much easier, I think, to identify in ancient times 
Because religion was such a central part of life back then. In the ancient world, cities were filled with temples. And there were gods of every kind. Why? Because people had so many different needs and desires. And so whether you craved power, or whether you lusted after pleasure, or you were simply desperate for a better harvest this year because the last one was ruined, the ancient world promised you a God who would get you what you needed or wanted. But in our secular day today, idol worship is really hard to recognize because idolatry in our secular society is no longer experienced in the trappings of religion. It's a lot harder, in other words, to identify our modern-day idols because we don't immediately identify that as worship, the way that we relate to them. I want to actually show you a video from an HBO series called Real Sports, hosted by Brian Gumbel. And this piece is going to uh, expose a troubling rise in what's been called elite youth sports in America. In essence, what it is is a phenomenon in which children at a very young age are pressured by their parents to specialize in a single sport and become an expert at it in order to remain competitive in the highly competitive culture of youth sports in America today. And so I just kind of reduced it to about five minutes or so, but I want you as you watch it to keep in mind as you watch this piece everything we've been talking about idolatry up to now, and then we'll go on. Let's have a look at that video. Emily Gervais was supposed to be a soccer star. She'd given the sport all she had for as long as she could remember. Good interest! Keep that up! And like more and more young athletes today, she had sky-high aspirations. It wasn't even just I want to play college. It was I want to play Division I soccer. And did that seem realistic? It was realistic. Emily started playing soccer when she was four. By the time she was 11, she was playing the sport year-round on an elite club team. Club was 11 months out of the year. You'd get a break July. You're coming back August. This was pretty much day in, day out, week in, week out, month after month. There are girls out there that are practicing all day, every day. And if you're not one of them, they will beat you to the spot you want. And if you want that spot, you better play round the clock all year round. This better be your everything if you want to be good at it. Real good at it. Not mom said I was good at it. But after all that work and all those practices, this is all Emily can do on a soccer field. Help coach her high school team from the sidelines. Guys, we're giving it up. we got to stay with it. After three major surgeries on her knee to repair three major tears, Emily's been forced to retire from the game at the age of 16. How many varsity soccer games did you play for your high school? Four games. People play four years, and I got four games. Now, Emily is part of a different club, the growing group of young athletes seeking help from this man, Min Coker, a renowned orthopedic surgeon at Boston Children's Hospital. Nice and relaxed, this is the ACL test. It's a trend that has left Coker alarmed. 
to the point where he began collecting data from other surgeons around the country to find out if they were seeing it too. What Coker learned was disturbing. The number of ACL reconstructions on children and adolescents had spiked nearly five times in just a decade. What did you think when you saw those numbers coming in? I was shocked because a four- to five-fold increase over 10 years is pretty dramatic in medicine. We don't see a lot of things increasing that rapidly. Um, but on the other hand, I felt like, yeah, that, it's validation. This is what I've been seeing in my clinic. It's all part of a trend we've been reporting on for the last three years, the professionalization of youth sports, which has become a $19 billion industry, fueled by kids and their parents pursuing athletic achievement at seemingly any cost. The financial cost is clear, with kids traveling the country weekend after weekend and taking private lessons from $100 an hour coaches. Less well-known are the physical costs, as young people, determined to keep up with the competition, are picking a single sport at a very young age, then playing it several hours a day, virtually every day of the year, until their body simply gives out. Different. For Emily, it's only been a few months since Dr. Coker gave her the toughest news of her young life, that her soccer career was over. It was shock, it was disbelief, and I felt like it was a dream. Ride home, ride to school the next day, in school, riding back from school. I just kept expecting myself to wake up. Now, like many sidelined young athletes, she has to cope without the sport she's loved her whole life. She still spends as much time as possible with the team, girls she's played with for years. They're my family. I wouldn't have been able to go through all this without them. They've been there through all of it. They've brought me hope, and they've showed me what I fight for. When I look at them, I see me, and I do get jealous. I see what I wish I was, but I know that if I can tell them to love it, and they truly are loving it, that was my role, you know? I am serving them in a way. If your son or daughter comes to you and they love so deeply a sport, you want to do everything you can to provide them with those opportunities. But when the injuries get more serious, so do the choices parents have to make, which is what happened to Shannon and Kirk Franz with their daughter Maddie, a soccer player with a bad knee, who is already on a regular treatment plan designed for the elderly. They started her on a series of it's osteoarthritis medicine, and they do um, three injections three weeks in a row and then she, her knee feels good and stays in place for about six months. When I listen to that... It sounds crazy. I agree. I agree. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> no, I mean, she has worn out her knees at the ripe old age of 17, and I don't know what that means for her future, and it scares me. What if I were to tell you what doctors will tell you are the long-term consequences? She'll need knee surgery eventually, knee replacement eventually. We just, we just like, it's like you're going to be hobbling around at the age of 30. So is that worth it? I don't know. I told you by the end of this series, I'm going to offend everybody, right? <laughs> and I'm touching a sacred cow right now, aren't I? What we have just watched is just one facet 
of this disturbing idolatry of sports that dominates American culture today. I mean, talking about this grim future that their daughter faces with multiple knee replacement surgeries, and a knee replacement surgery doesn't last more than a decade. Hobbling around like an elderly person by the time she reaches her 30s. And her father asks, so is it worth it? And you wish the father would say, I think maybe we have lost our minds. (laughs) But sadly, he answers his own question, I don't know. Is it worth it? Think about that girl, Emily, that was featured at the very beginning, that high school soccer player at the start of the video. After her body is irreparably damaged as a result of her devotion to the sport, she has discovered a new mission in life. And it's not to warn others of the dangers of overdoing it like she did. Instead, she says that her mission now is to convince her teammates to love soccer even more. To love it as much as she has loved it and given her life to it. And she says with tears running down her eyes, if I can just accomplish that mission, then I will have done my duty. I will have served them well. Friends, that is worship. That is worship. Listen, is it wrong for your children to participate in organized sports? No, okay? Is there something inherently evil about youth sports or sports in general? Of course not. The problem, though, as I think we've already established, is that idols are almost always good things that become harmful to us when we make them ultimate things. And I'm going to say this very firmly. I believe that for many Christian families in America today, youth sports has become the battlefield on which our hearts are being tested about where our ultimate priorities lie. And I worry that the message that we're sending our children is that their involvement in that sport wins out over everything else, even God. Nothing has higher priority than a sporting competition or tournament, not even church. No dollar amount is too high in order to get our kids into the best clubs and leagues. And the message to our kids is clear. Mom and dad will do whatever it takes. We'll move heaven and earth to make sure you can play that sport and be great at it. No cost is too high. No sacrifice is too great for this. Listen, those of you whose kids aren't in sports and are more artsy and go, man, preach it, brother. (laughs) And some of you are squirming in your seats because you have very athletic kids. It's not about youth sports, per se. I'm just asking you, how honest are you with the idols that compete in your heart. Because like I said, it doesn't look like worship in the modern trappings of a secular society. Very hard to identify it 
as worship. Kyle Eidelman says this, seeing my faith and life through the lens of idolatry has rebuilt my relationship with God from the ground up. As we look at life through this lens, it becomes clear that we're, uh, there's a war going on. The gods are at war, and their strength is not to be underestimated. These gods clash for the throne of your heart, and much is at stake. Everything about me, everything I do, every relationship I have, everything I hope or dream or wish to become depends on what God wins that war. Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all others come from. So if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with, eventually you'll find that underneath it is a false god. Until that God is dethroned and the Lord God takes his rightful place, you will not have victory. In his novel, The Fall, Albert Camus writes, For anyone who is alone without God and without a master, the weight of days is dreadful. Hence, one must choose a master, God being out of style. What Camus is saying is that in our modern secular society that is dispatched with God, something must replace that vacuum. Because even he as an atheist said there is something inherent in human nature that causes us to worship. We must obey a master in our life. Tim Keller makes a helpful distinction, I think, between what he calls surface idols and deep idols. Surface idols are things like money or marriage or children or career or sex or beauty. But underneath these surface idols, he argues, are what he calls deeper idols. These are the most foundational motivations that drive us. Whether it's a hunger for power and influence or the approval of others or physical or emotional comfort or security or control. And these are the idols that, in truth, we really need to identify in our lives if we are going to understand our struggle with idolatry. You know, someone could care less about whether they have approval from others. And they may feel very proud of that. But maybe under this constant driving need for control or security. To truly understand how idolatry operates in our life, we need to identify these deeper idols that result in us clinging to those more surface idols in our life. Let me just give you an example of how this sort of plays out. Think about the surface idol of money. Now, outwardly, someone can live a very modest life. They don't really spend a whole lot. They live in a small, reasonable home, drive reasonably priced vehicles. And when you look at that, by all intents and purposes, you can say, yeah, I don't think this person struggles with money. I don't think that's an idol for them. But to truly understand what's going on, and the truth is they save a ton of money that way. But what I would argue is that money could still be an idol, in that person's life, because the deeper idol that drives them could be security. And this person has come to the conclusion that money is the best way to achieve that security that they long for in their life. So not surprisingly, they don't spend a lot. 
But also one of the telltale signs of a person struggling with this way is they also tend to be struggling with generosity toward the needs of others and be rather stingy about how they help others in need. Why? Because underneath that modest spending habit is a deeper idol of security, and it says that money will purchase that security for me. Someone else may idolize money, but for an entirely other reason. Their deeper idol, in other words, could be status or the approval of others. And so, unlike that previous person, this person ends up spending money lavishly and often is very generous to others, hosting extravagant parties and buying expensive gifts. And it's very easy to point to that person and say, yeah, I think he's got a money issue. But maybe the reason underneath all that spending is the insecure, even desperate need to be accepted or approved by others. And this may very well lead to its own form of materialism, acquiring more and more things that we think will gain us status in the eyes of others and make them think more highly of us. And it's kind of fascinating to think about these two people side by side, judging one another, right? (laughs) But what they may not understand is that actually for both of them, money is their God. Because money can get them to those deeper gods that are at the very core of their struggle in life. It is not easy by any means (laughs) digging up these deeper idols in our life. And I think it has to take the work of the Holy Spirit revealing something in us for us to come to that place of honesty. What are the gods that compete with my devotion for God in my own heart. Eidelman actually offers us a list of questions that I think can be very helpful for us to try to unmask the idols in our life. And so I'm just going to run through them rather quickly. One, he says, is ask yourself, what disappoints you? Your idols, in other words, will often be exposed when you feel the deepest sense of disappointment or loss in your life. Secondly, ask yourself, what do you complain the most about? Because we complain about the things that matter to us. In fact, you should probably not try to answer that yourself. Ask your loved ones, what do I complain about all the time, honey? And I'm sure they'll be more than glad to tell you. (laughs) And there you go. They have just told you what your idols are. Number three, where do you make financial sacrifices? Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. Where, in other words, are you willing to spend the most money? Or when are you happiest and freest in spending money? Next, what worries you? What stirs the deepest anxieties in your heart? Next, where is your sanctuary? In other words, where do you turn when you are hurting or needing comfort? Where do you seek refuge when the storms in your life hit you? Because there you may find your gods. Next, what infuriates you? This becomes one of the best ways to expose our idols is to figure out when our anger is triggered. What really makes you angry in life? I'm so angry that people don't worship Jesus. (laughs) 
If only that could be what all of us testify. What regularly gets you upset the most? And I suspect there you will find an idol. And then lastly this, what are your dreams? What are the hopes and fantasies that you hide in your heart that truthfully you may have never shared with anybody? What are the deepest longings? Because that too may reveal an idol. And so in the last message, I sort of gave you that homework assignment of asking yourself, what do I want? If I were to give you a homework assignment coming out of this message, could I invite you to actually wrestle with this assessment? What are my surface idols? And what are my deeper idols that cause me to cling to those surface idols? As I said in that last message, the problem with idols is that they are too weak to bear the weight of our deepest needs and longings and hopes in this life. All of them will one day break your heart if you try to find ultimate answers in those things. The prophet Isaiah gave us a graphic picture of the failure of idols to deliver on their promises. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1 to 7, it says this, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low. These are pagan gods. Their idols are born by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried you since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on their scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. And they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Through the prophet's voice, God exposes the absurdity of putting their hopes in these idols, thinking that these idols can help them, when in the end what he argues is they are just going to add to your burdens. They promise you freedom from them, but when you give your heart to those things, they do the exact opposite and they enslave you. And they become a burden themselves. Because they aren't alive. They have no power within themselves to deliver on those promises. And so instead, it's this ridiculous picture of you got to carry your God everywhere you go. And say, this is the God that will deliver us. And God is saying, look at how silly that is. You are the one that has to help out that God. Because what God is saying as he contrasts those idols to himself is, I am the only one true living God. Who, whether you could ever recognize it and acknowledge it in your life, and the one who has sustained you and carried you and helped you in your life. Make money your savior because you think it can save you. And the more that money will enslave you and consume you. Make an idol of your family and the likely result will only be more heartbreak and pain. As you make demands on them, they are incapable 
of giving you. In contrast, God says, I am he who can sustain you and help you in your time of need. Tim Keller writes, if we look to somewhat created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. I want to close the message by looking at one final facet of idolatry that gives the title of the message today, of reflecting what we worship. In the first message, right after the new year, uh, on fixing our eyes on Jesus, I talked about how we are so shaped by the things that we fix our eyes on. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying here is this, is that God's intent was that we would never live our lives independently of him. By design, he created us in his image to reflect his glory in his creation. And the way that we are able to reflect that glory, he says, is by fixing our eyes on Jesus And as we do so, we ourselves become transformed by that gaze. We become people capable of forgiveness and love when we experience God's forgiveness and love to us. We become selfless and giving toward others when we experience God's generosity toward us. And as we keep fixing our eyes on Jesus and all that he is, we discover that we ourselves become transformed by the vision of him as we grow in Christ-likeness and reflect that glory to others. But here's the thing. The Bible also says this. When you take your eyes off of Christ and fix them on lesser things of this world, it too has a transforming power in your life in a negative way. Greg Beale says this. All humans have been created to be reflecting beings. And they will reflect whatever they are ultimately committed to, whether the true God or some other object in the created order. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What you worship, you will resemble. There's this great chapter in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, when God calls his servant Isaiah to become a prophet and to bring a message to his wayward people. And much of that first six chapters is dominated by the theme of idolatry. And what's so disorienting is right after God calls Isaiah into his prophetic ministry, he tells Isaiah, this is going to be the nature of the ministry that you're going to do in verses 9 to 10. It says this, he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So he's describing Isaiah's audience to him and say, uh, these are going to be people that are deaf and dumb, blind, You're going to preach to them, and it's going to be like nothing. Like nothing is getting through to them. 
That's going to be your ministry, Isaiah. What's so interesting is this. This exact description of the Israelites is describing idols repeatedly in the Old Testament. That is Beal's argument. And if you look at Psalm 115, verse 4 to 8, it captures that perfectly. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Very similar to the description of the Israelites, isn't it? And then look at, this is the clincher in verse 8. It says this, those who make them, speaking of these idols, will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. This is the repeated warning in the Bible. If you worship idols, you will become like them. Just as they are dead and in their deadness have no ability to understand spiritual things, when you begin to worship those things, you too will become like that. Your heart too will become hardened so that you are no longer sensitive to spiritual things. Your eyes too will become blinded. Your ears will become deaf to the spiritual realities around you. This may be one of the most devastating aspects of idolatry, is the way that it will mar the image of God in you. That is the war that is going on for our hearts in the spiritual battle every day. Either fixing our eyes on Christ, which is life-giving and life-transforming, or fixing our eyes on the things of this world and watching our soul die and shrivel under that gaze of the things of this world. I asked that in that first message, and I want to ask it again. Do you recognize that dynamic in your own heart when you realize that you fixed your gaze and set it on something other than Christ and seeing the negative impact that it has in your soul? Whether it's about somebody that you resent or are angry toward, or some injustice that was done against you, or somebody that's succeeding and you're jealous of, or some right that you think should be wrong because it was unfair and you're just stewing in that self-pity. And as we fix our gaze on those things, look at what it does to your soul. And look at what it happens in your heart. God says, if you bow to these idols, you will resemble them in the deadness of your spirit. And so what God calls us to is to fix our eyes on Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now, you can look at that and say, my goodness, when I think about those deep idols, my need for control or security or affirmation, I don't have a clue as to how to even begin to root that out of my life. How do I even work on that and go there? And I'm going to sort of unpack some of the mechanics of that in the next message. But where I want to leave you, at least for today, this weekend, is just simply we've got to begin 
by taking our eyes off of those things and fixing them on Christ. The only way you could let go the deepest idols in your life is if by faith you believe that Jesus has your back and is going to care for you and meet you at every place of need in your life. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6-7, I'll close with this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. This is God's ultimate answer to every idolatry that we struggle with. Cast every need and care on me because I care for you. I am the one that has sustained you up to now, whether you realize it or not. And until your gray hairs, I will sustain you for the rest of your life. Let's pray. The answer of God to all of our idolatries and the invitation that he offers to us is to allow him to be our burden bearer. And that takes a great act of faith that God must initiate in us to quit all of that striving, all of our desperate efforts to engineer a life of happiness. And so I just want you to think about all the ways that this plays out in our life, all the great efforts and strides that we make for achievement, all of the ways that we push people away by constantly trying to manipulate them and and whine and complain to them thinking we can change them all to try to secure that happy life that we feel so desperate for. And I think what God says is, when you go down that road, it just leads to greater enslavement, greater misery, greater disappointment. The true life of freedom, the true life of joy, the true life-giving, celebratory life only comes when we fix our gaze on Christ alone, who has promised to be our burden bearer. And so could I invite you in this moment to cast your cares on God? Whatever burdens that you feel in your heart of hearts, whatever the hidden anxieties, whatever the things that really worry you or stress you out, whatever dreams that you have, whatever hopes and longings hidden in your heart, would you just lay that all at the feet of Christ and say, God, give me the faith to just entrust all of that to you and believe that you care for me because of your love for me.